0: welcome to the bill kelly podcast i'm bill kelly While well, the arrive Camp procurement process has raised some questions how was the contract awarded in the first place and why doesn't the government have oversight since it did happen also as we approach the one-year anniversary what is left of the freedom convoy movement and has the ford government's housing plan been built on a foundation of evidentiary sand we'll explore that as well the bill kelly podcast coming up and it starts now Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we mentioned, the uh, Liberals are in Hamilton uh, for the next couple of days for a uh, policy retreat. Uh, The Prime Minister was on the CHML Morning Show just a little while ago, talking about uh, some of the things on their agenda and and moving forward. And we've talked about plans for inflation, healthcare, etc., like that. But one of the other items that uh, needs to be addressed here are some. say, questionable activities when it comes to some government spending. And uh, one of those, of course, was the Arrive Can app. Now, we talked all about that during the pandemic because it was mandatory at one point. So the prime minister was asked if uh, Canada's top public servant uh, to look into government procurement uh, for the development of the uh, Arrive Canada app. Now, the Globe and Mail has been doing some extensive reporting on this, and they say that the government paid a two-person Ottawa firm $44 million over two years to subcontract six other companies to actually do the work. At a news conference uh, earlier this week, uh, the prime minister was asked if the clerk of the Privy Council is going to investigate.
1: Obviously, this is uh, a practice that seems highly uh, illogical and uh, inefficient. And uh, I have made sure that the uh, clerk of the Privy Council is looking into procurement practices to make sure uh, that we're getting value for money and that we're doing things in a smart and logical way.
0: Uh, good question. Uh, look at some of the numbers here. Uh, one of the folks who's been following this story so very well and reporting on this is Justin Ling. Justin is a freelance investigative journalist who's written extensively for the Globe and Mail and The Guardian and Vice. Uh, Justin, glad you could join us today. Uh, interesting topic. And uh, uh, it, you get the sense sometimes with governments, it's it's do what I say, not what I do, because there seem to be some uh, some incongruous moments here when it comes to how this money is being spent.
2: Yeah. Hey, hey, good morning, Bill. I, I mean, I should, off the top, I mean, um, you know, some of the, some of this contracting stuff, I think, is, is bad news for the government. Um, it was global news who's been reporting on some um, shady, potentially kind of inappropriate contracts that have gone to a, a family member of one of um, immigration minister uh, Hussein's um, family members. Um, but this sort of contracting is the sort of thing that can really get a government in trouble, right? But um, when it comes down to you know, significant amounts of, of government money uh, going to companies that don't necessarily deserve it, um, that got those uh, awards through personal relationships, uh, through maybe in some cases, uh, you know inappropriate tendering processes, these are the sort of stories that can really cause headaches for governments uh, long term. I mean, I know the opposition loves to sort of focus on, um, you know, what vacation the Prime Minister has took, uh, or whether or not somebody created the proper double-blind ethics screen, right? That sort of thing feels so esoteric to people, and it feels so, frankly, inconsequential to their daily lives. But if you're in a situation where companies are getting sweetheart deals just because of their personal relationships, that speaks to something deeper and more troubling about how government works. And that's the sort of thing that makes people
0: genuinely really angry, and understandably so. Well, sure. And and the one you just referenced, of course, uh, is uh, uh, one of the ministers, of course, uh, Minister Hussein, whose office awarded uh, over $93,000 in communications contract to a company called Munchmore Media. Uh, which is a Toronto-based firm focused on food and restaurant industry. And apparently, uh, I I think it's the sister of his wife or something like that. That was the family Mm -hmm. tie. Uh, But this is supposed to be for public relations and marketing and communication for his constituents and for his riding. Mm -hmm. Why would you hire a a firm that does food uh, commercials to to do something like that unless, you know, is blood thicker than water here?
2: Yeah, I mean that's exactly it, and you know I think it speaks to a kind of a broader problem with uh, you know private sector contracting in this in this country more broadly, right? We don't have a lot of oversight on how this stuff gets done. Um, it requires somebody like Alex Bootler at Global News sitting and going through every single contract that every single constituency office signed with every single company uh, in order to figure out which ones might have personal relationships uh, with the ministers' office uh, when it comes to something like the ArriveCan app. Um, You know, we don't actually get disclosure on who contracted, who who got, got subcontracted, who actually paid who, who was actually tapped to do this work at the beginning of the day. You know, there is a little level of opacity here that is really frustrating. Um, and, it, you know, thankfully, we have journalists who are doing this work, who are putting in the time and effort to make sure that this sort of coverage gets done. Um, but all too often um you know i think stuff gets missed uh, and 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 the government is very good at at keeping the cards close to their chest i mean the government is still protecting, um, you know, exactly how the arrive can contract worked. Um, you know, the government is still withholding details about how uh, consulting firms like McKinsey have gotten government work, what they've done, what they've actually produced for the money. Uh, we still don't always get a detailed sense of whether or not these these contracts are actually competitive, or whether they are sole sourced, or whether the deck is stacked for a particular company or another. Um, you know, it, it was 15 years ago now that the Conservative Party came in on a promise to fix a lot of these problems, and to their credit, they actually did some really great work. You know, following the sponsorship scandal, uh, Stephen Harper uh, introduced a, a suite of reforms that made it easier to suss out these contracts, made uh, improved transparency reporting, improved uh, accountability and oversight about how the government spends money, how constituency offices hire firms, how um, you know, companies and consultants get brought in to uh, to do work for the government, but unfortunately, that hasn't really been updated with time. And we're seeing a massive explosion in the number of consulting firms and public-private partnerships. And and that transparency regime has not been kept up to date in in tandem. So now we're in a situation where um, you know, we're we're really fighting upstream to try and hold this government to account uh, based on how they you know they spend our money.
0: One of the things, I guess, and, and you and I have talked about this, and, and Alex Boulier uh, has been on the show a number of times, because you're right, he does some great work on this, uh, is is where is the government oversight even after? There, there's two ways to look at this. One is, how does the contract get awarded in the first place? And and does the government have oversight once that happens? And and I think the Arrive Can app is, is probably a great example of that. Uh, yeah. The estimates we got when they first started this and, and introduced it was about $80,000. That's what it's gonna cost. If going to cost. Okay, fine. Well, the, the, it's ballooned now to $54 million I mean, how does something like that happen?
2: It, so, so listen. There's there's two parts to that that answer, right? One part is that a lot of this stuff costs more than we think it does, right? Um, you know, I have a little bit of insight to how this app got designed and and scaled up and and updated and hosted. Uh, and the reality is, yeah, it can be pretty cheap to make an app, yeah, you know, 80k or so, right? But you start factoring in uh, server costs, right? You actually have to host a lot of the data, or at least to transit a lot of the data that gets reported into the app. Then you need somebody to constantly be doing updates, be doing service. You want someone who. Can keep updating and changing the app as as more requirements go on. And this is true both for ArriveCAN, really any any piece of government technology. This is how you want it to work, right? We don't want a government that just builds a system and then lets it sit there to break and depreciate and ultimately cause errors and headaches, right? We actually do want a company who's constantly updating it, who's making sure it's running properly, who has the expertise and the skill set there to make sure it's working properly. That does cost a a pretty penny. That probably does cost north of a $1 Dollars. It does not cost 55 whatever $80, whatever million dollars we're at now. And, and it's pretty obvious to me that the reason that cost is so high is because it's been contracted, subcontracted, subcontracted, right? The government of Canada doesn't have a habit of just going to a good technology firm who can do this in-house, who can manage all of this themselves. We frequently go to consulting firms like McKinsey who turn around and hire another consulting firm who turn around and hire another. Consulting firm. Uh, in some cases, they're big multinationals. In some cases, they're small local Ottawa operations who make their entire income from doing this sort of subcontracting. But there's a good question to be made about whether uh, to be asked about whether or not we need this professional consulting class to be running interference and basically operating as a second arm of our public procurement system. I don't think we do. I think it's a massive waste of money. I think companies like McKinsey and KPMG uh, and Deloitte uh, are getting massively fat. and rich off of taxpayer dollars without actually adding all of that much value to the systems we're building. And in some cases, I think they're actually making them worse. So we need to have a conversation about this, because the Trudeau government has exploded the way we use these consultants, and it never asked the public, it never debated this in Parliament, it never passed a bill or a report, it just started doing it. And now that we're asking questions, they're actually fighting to protect a lot of this information. Uh, Did you know, for example, that a lot of the documents around uh, can. Uh, the vast majority of the products that McKinsey produces and many of these consultant uh, material work product is protected from the Access to Information Act. So it's actually shielded from the transparency and accountability mechanisms that we have in place. And the Trudeau government has enabled this and encouraged this and they're doing
0: nothing to fix it. Well, and the, the Arrive Can, I guess, is the example. As you mentioned, it was a company called JC Strategies, which is an Ottawa based firm uh, mm-hmm. that won the contract. But they, they've they contracted six different times. And as you mentioned, eventually KPMG and BDO uh, were the ones that, that got the final stuff done. Uh, and it, as uh, I forget which one of the, the reporters asked yesterday here in Hamilton, uh, they basically said, why don't you just go to KPMG and let them do the work? And, and the prime minister says, that's a good question. I, yeah, that's what he asked the Privy Council. But that's the process, because as as we've talked about before, the further down you go, the more consultants you hire and consultant A hires consultant B, the, the less transparent it's going to be and, and the more difficult it's going to be to track with it what's happening and who's, and who's doing what.
2: Well, and I can tell you for a fact that I know some of the folks who actually built the Arrive Can app. Um, Very, very small operation, Um, a a small number of people working in in kind of off the side of their desk, uh, you know, in a a kind of um, a small company that does good work. Um, They... uh, built the app to spec it worked actually probably better than most government of canada technology, technological solutions they did it for pretty cheap they did it remarkably fast right you know, it was actually a success story that's been bastardized because you've had so many consultants around the pot and dipping their fingers in right you know this could have been a good news story of the government going to a a small kind of bootstrap shop and getting something done quick, effectively, and cheap but instead of that, you had all of these you know suits standing around uh, enriching themselves on the taxpayer account. Um, to do, you know, who knows what at this point, really to to just call up the the contractor to, to project manage? I mean, is that worth the millions of dollars they charge? And, and it, this is a debate we actually have to have in this country. It's not sexy, I realize. It's not something that necessarily impacts people's day-to-day lives. But when you do this level of outsourcing, and when you shield it from accountability and transparency, you will eventually wind up with graft, and in some cases, outright corruption. I mean, you know, this is the lesson we are Supposed to have learned at least in part from the sponsorship scandal when you let governments go off and do their own, you know, run these little slush funds or 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 run programs that are are not accountable to the public or to the media, um, and when it's solely to their discretion who gets the contract, whether it's sole source, how much it is, uh, whether or not it gets subcontracted, that's where you wind up. With money getting wasted and and going to folks, friends and family members, uh, and and ultimately it winds up with inferior products uh, and wastes of government money. And I, I think it's time we actually have this conversation.
0: Well, and, and hopefully this is going to be a jumping off point for it, but I guess the question here is, you know, how, how much more of this are we going to hear about before we finally say, look at, okay, there's got to be a process in place. I mean, uh, at lower levels of government, I, I spent some time in municipal government and of course, you know, contracts were awarded there, uh, but there's a pretty clear and transparent session of, of, and methodology for that uh, where you submit bids and, and not necessarily the lowest bid, the most practical. I mean, there's a series of criterion here. Uh, none of those rules seem to apply at the federal level and, and or provincial level for that matter too uh we just know that a firm has been hired and invariably as you say when folks like you or alex or others uh start you know digging a little into this you find out that sometimes uh, there's a government connection or a family connection to it and that's not the way we're supposed to do things yeah, so, so the thing is, that's partly true. Right, technically on the federal level, we actually do
2: have, uh, you know, relatively strict and, and relatively good rules for how you do these, these these tendering procedures. Right. Generally speaking, it's actually quite bureaucratic, and, and it's quite um, supposedly, you know, uh, guarded against graft and waste. Right. You know, there tends to have to be a request for information, then a request for proposals, and then you solicit bids. You choose uh, the the lowest cost, but also based on a set of criteria. And 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 then you award it to them and all this documentation is published online and all of this um, is is reported at least quarterly, right? That's how it's supposed to work. And that's for for a lot of contracts. That's how it works, right? You know, if I want to go and look at how much the government spent on pens in the last year, I can go do that. I can go look at the solicitation documents. I can go and ensure that the supplier they chose was the lowest possible bid. Unfortunately, there are a couple of loopholes that allow you get to get out of that, Uh, and in some cases, there are tricks and tactics you can use to sort of game that system. There's actually a really great book, and it's I keep mentioning McKinsey because I think they're kind of emblematic of a lot of these problems. But there's this great book called When McKinsey Comes to Town, and it looks at the ways in which governments, mostly in the U.S. but to some degree Canada, have actually gamed the system to make sure that McKinsey gets these contracts. How they change the criteria uh, to in some cases, give it to McKinsey, even though they were the highest cost bid, right? And some of the McKinsey contracts the co- the Canadian government has handed out, they were non-competitive. Uh, in some cases, they were only uh, offered up to a handful of similar consulting firms, right? There are problems in the system. Like I said, it hasn't been updated in more than a decade. It's time we go and talk about this because, you know, I don't think we should handcuff the government, right? We need to allow the private sector to come in and, and do work that the Canadian government can't do. But we also have to make sure that it's not just friends and family and favored firms who are getting this these contracts, even if they don't seem to be
0: adding any value. Uh, we got to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Uh, great reporting on this. And, and as you say, there's, there's got to be not just a system in place, but there's got to be uh, people that manage that system. And, and that's the discussion I think that we need to have. Justin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks. Justin Ling, a freelance investigative journalist who's written for the Globe, Mail, Star, uh, the, the Guardian rather, and The Vice. Uh, follow up on that too about process, because I know that's what causes skepticism in government. Uh, and that's that can be infectious for any government, and we need to do something about that. And so does the, the government. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, I'll talk about uh, one of the other items uh, that is, well, on people's minds these days because we're very closely approaching the one-year anniversary of the uh, the three-week-long insurrection in downtown Ottawa. Uh, There was some talk some weeks ago now that there might be a part two uh, this coming February to that. Ottawa Police Chief Eric Stubbs now says that resources, including tow trucks and staffing plans, are in place as the city prepares to mark the one-year anniversary of the start of that convoy. A Canadian press reporter, uh, Brenda Molina Navidad, has some details for us.
1: On January 28th and 29th of last year, thousands of people gathered on streets in front of Parliament Hill with trucks and big rigs, protesting COVID 19 restrictions and the Liberal government. Ottawa police say they're ready for the possibility that the anniversary of the start of the protest could spark another one. But Stubbs wouldn't reveal details of what police believe is planned or how many demonstrators are expected.
0: So that was the plan. Uh, and then, of course, there was talk about maybe moving to, uh, to Winnipeg, and that lasted a few days, and then they canceled that. And then some other folks uh, who were involved in that organization said, no, we're still going to do something in Winnipeg. Uh, but it looks as if there's going to be at least a, a, a recognition of it by some of the protesters, uh, once again, in the nation's capital. So what's going on with this group? And maybe the overriding question is, who are this group? <laughs> Uh, That's that's going to be the concern here at this stage. Uh, There's a great piece of investigative reporting that was done by our next guest. Uh, Grant LaFleche is a spectator reporter uh, and uh, has done some great work on this. And uh, his piece uh, that says what's left of the Freedom Convoy one year later, I think is very poignant. And uh, we're uh, pleased to welcome Grant to the Bill Kelly show to talk about this. Uh, Great to have you with us today. Thanks so much. Uh, Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, on everybody's minds as we approach the one-year anniversary, we need only say convoy, freedom convoy, whichever phrase you, people want to use. And, and it conjures up the pictures that we all saw last February uh, of the trucks uh, lining up the streets, closing down traffic, the argument about who was doing what, anti-vax, etc. Uh, you talk to some of the people that were involved in this. Uh, is is the fire still there for them? Are they still ready to to, to do what they need to do to get their message across? Or, or is is it just kind of dimmed a little bit it really depends on who you talk to so um people who are in
3: hamilton downtown hamilton on sundays will know there is a small group of about a dozen or so protesters who have been there for about 130 consecutive sundays they were protesting before the 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 so-called freedom convoy to ottawa uh and they're protesting now and they haven't stopped and as you mentioned at the top, there is a plan to have what I could best describe as a convoy jamboree on a religious camp about 30 minutes uh, outside of Winnipeg. On the other hand, uh, there are some pretty prominent voices within you know, what is a, a largely leader, leaderless movement who are saying protests are no longer necessary Uh, in large measure because the mandates that were ostensibly supposed to be at the core of what they were protesting last year, um, those have been lifted, have been lifted for a long time. So they don't think that uh, protests do anything except make them look bad. The the fire in the belly for many of them, no matter which side of that divide they're on, still seems to be there. The, The issue is they can't decide anymore on what they A, what they should be protesting, what they're protesting now is a sort of a buckshot of, of different issues, uh, and how and when they ought to be doing that. But for some people, protesting has now become a, a near permanent way of life. And this is just what they do. They do it in person, and they do it on social media, sometimes every day, sometimes all day, every day.
0: But as you mentioned in the piece that I was reading, Grant, and I think we talked about this last February as this was going on in Ottawa and even as the convoy was making its way across the country uh, there's, there's a huge variety of, of, of reasons why people were there or why people supported it, even if they weren't there. Uh, you know, some were anti-vaxxers, some didn't like the mandates. So that's, that's certainly clear. Uh, some were just people that just didn't like government and don't like rules and regulations. And they latched onto that issue, uh, as kind of a focus for their, their angst and their anger. Uh, that's very true. I mean, one of the, the people we spoke to for that story, uh it was a guy named
3: Justin Long who had you may remember the old Yellow Vest movement from around 2019. Yeah. This was like a a proto-convoy movement. It was the first attempt by a bunch of anti-government people to sort of organize a movement to just oppose the federal government. And he was one of those and he's got a tattoo on his hands that that on the top of his hand that commemorates both the Ottawa uh, occupation and the Yellow Vest movement that he used to be part of. Uh, so you're right. There's a very powerful anti-government sentiment. Generally, there's people who were doing this before uh, the pandemic even began. And um, there's also sort of a a, a quasi QAnon element to all of this. I mean, you look at the things that they're protesting now, which were issues that these people had before Ottawa, but they were galvanized in that one moment around the mandates. But we have people protesting uh, the, the LGBTQ community and drag shows. We have people protesting, uh, what they think is a government attempted takeover of the internet. We have people protesting the WEF. We have people protesting, um, all kinds of different, Jordan Peterson, you know, is, is another one. Um, so it's, depending on who you talk to in the movement, it will, de- it may be, de- give you a different answer on what it is that they think is their top issue to, to protest
0: now and and i'm glad you brought up uh, the insurrections in the states of course the uh january 6th event from a couple of years ago too because it seemed to be the same formula really when you look at it uh you know the the proud boys and a number of other groups who basically were just they, they were anti-establishment anti-media anti-government types uh and all of a sudden they focused on on what they considered to be a a, a A corrupt election there was no evidence of that but that that was their focus and that that kind of brought all these desperate desperate groups together and the same thing seems to be happening here but uh, and and they always and as you point out in the article you you talk to a number of these people and even if you go back to some of the testimony of some of the ones who have been tried on on charges uh, they talked about you know the 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 Bouncy castles and and the barbecues and we were yeah. just there protesting and we were peaceful, uh, but you counteract that with uh, people like uh, Tom Marazzo, who you talked about, uh, a former army guy who was uh, one of the the leaders of the insurrection too, and he's still basically preaching about anarchy, about you know pu- the, the public should be able to overthrow the government if they so fit. Don't, no elections necessary. We'll just decide who's going to govern and what they're going to do. That that's 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 quite that's the polar opposite of bouncy castles, isn't it? Uh, it sure is. And, you know, it's, it's worth noting that
3: philosophically, um, the, the convoy movement and the people behind the January 6th insurrection in the U.S., uh, they, I mean, they're very close. I mean, they, they often they, they will retweet the same things, the same memes, whether it's about uh, Joe Biden or vaccines like they're, they're singing from the same very big hymnal uh, of conspiracy theories in that case. Um, the difference in Ottawa, of course, it was not an attempted at insurrection, although it was uh, three weeks of occupation, plus uh, the border crossings which were shut down, all of which resulted in the invocation of the Emergencies Act. But yes, you do have a, a different kind of kettle of fish with some of the louder voices, including Tom Marazzo, including Preston Manning, we should note, the former uh, Reform Party leader and leader of the official opposition in Ottawa um, a few years back. Um, Manning and Maratzo are singing from the same book when it comes to creating, they want to see the creation of some kind of citizens committee that has some sort of oversight uh, over the House of Commons. Maratzo, even the other day, is you know trying to sort out some way that you could depose the government without an election. If the government's unpopular in his view, you should just be able to remove it somehow. On top of that, you have Preston Manning now pushing for what he's calling a citizen's inquiry into the federal government's <coughs> excuse me uh, COVID-19 response. But this is not an official inquiry being done under the auspices of the Public Inquiry Act. They can't compel testimony. There's no rules of perjury and ju- jurisprudence, which, all of which you would normally have in an in inquiry. Instead, the commissioners and the witnesses and the rules are being decided by some sort of working group that Preston Manning, when I interviewed him, uh, declined to identify. So, you know, it's not even an official inquiry, but <clears throat> it does seem to have um, a predetermined idea that everything that had happened in the response was wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. And on top of it all, the rules of it are being decided by people that aren't being identified. And we know that some of the people that are with the small kind of group of directors that Manning is working with have deep connections to some of the louder voices, both in the convoy group in the United States and the insurrectionists in the
0: U.S., including Paul Alexander, who was a former advisor to former President Trump. Uh, Fascinating article, and and, and I think it gives us a really deep perspective on what has happened and what could be happening in the future. Grant, uh, congratulations, great work on this, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Anytime. Take care. Grant LaFleche, investigative journalist, Uh, his piece is in the uh, the Hamilton Spectator. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the uh, Ford government's uh, policy about Greenbelt and that massive incursion into the Greenbelt to justify building more homes. And this is, of course, the housing issue has been a concern for quite some time. This, as the government has told us, is their solution to it, or at least a big part of it anyway. Uh, and a lot of folks are saying, no, it's wrong. It's wrong. As a matter of fact, there's a, a piece in the uh, theconversation.com which questions even the criteria that were used. Not the policy itself. Well, yes, certainly, but even the foundation for it and the justification for it uh, doesn't seem to be there. Uh, the author of the piece is uh, Professor Mark Winfield. Uh, professor Winfield is a political science and professor of environmental studies at York University and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, professor, glad you had some time for us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well,
1: thank you. Very, very happy to I- join you.
0: Well, you've you uh, you and a number of others have done your homework on this, and and unfortunately, an awful lot of us uh, just take government, uh, you know, numbers and criterion and, and statistics at, at face value and say, well, I guess there's a justification for it. May not like the policy, but as you point out in the piece, even the numbers seem to be misleading, and in some cases, may be inaccurate.
1: Yes. Well, we had a look at. Um what's been said around this as we know the government has put out this figure of a target of 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years and and then justified uh the sweeping changes made to the land use planning process including opening the green belt including forcing hamilton uh, to allow the urbanization of, of land that it did not want to urbanize and so we went back and looked at uh both the the basis for that 1.5 million homes number and also at what has been said around the land supply question. And and on both fronts, um, I think there are very serious questions that have to be raised about uh, the rationale for what the government's done. Is is the need that they claim is there actually there, I think emerges as, as quite a significant question.
0: You talked about a couple of other pieces of legislation here that uh, preceded this and, and almost seemed to set the scene for this. One, of course, is the uh, More Homes Built Faster Act that they talked about, and the, and that's Bill 23, uh, and also Bill 39, Better Municipal Governance Act uh, of 2022. And, and both of those, as we've discussed extensively on the program, uh, Professor, uh, basically <laughs> – have eliminated an awful lot of the, the processes that have been in place for generations now, uh, checks and balances against governments succeeding their, their mandate uh, and protection of environmental issues. That basically, I guess they, they wanted to, to wipe that slate clean so they could come in and do what they wanted to do with the green belt.
1: It seems so. I mean, in some ways, Bill 23 uh, and Bill 39, which was the strong mayor legislation, which also undoes the Duffins Rouge Agricultural Reserve, um, was kind of an extension of what the government had already been doing incrementally, uh, particularly with respect to conservation authorities uh, through ministerial zoning orders and other measures, and effectively sort of generalizes it across the planning process. And important to remember, it's not just uh, the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area, it is, this applies across the province. And as mm-hmm. many people have pointed out, particularly in relation to things like conservation authorities. Uh, This turns the clock back into the 1950s and even the 1940s, and that was part of the reason we felt, well, we need to have a a more careful look at the rationale for such a draconian uh, set of measures in terms of how they affect land use, but also local governance and the role of municipal councils, especially we've seen in Hamilton, where the council was effectively overridden. Uh, On the question of urban boundary expansions, um, was was there a factual basis there for what the government has done?
0: And you found, uh, quite frankly, that well, as you mentioned, this seems to be on on shifting sands here. There there doesn't seem to be a foundation of evidence, anyway.
1: No, I mean our our conclusion, which Chris shared with other people, we were we were reviewing what other people have written, seems that that. Um, the basis for the one point five million homes figure seems seems very flimsy. Um, could be an overestimate by as much as fifty percent, depending on what kind of assumptions you make. But even if you bought into that number and accepted it, um if you look at the question of land supply, it's also very, very clear that there is a more than adequate supply of land. Uh, that has already been designated to be urbanized within the region, uh, available to accommodate the anticipated growth, um, and further lands beyond the Green Belt, within the Green Belt, but outside of the boundaries of the Green Belt, to be clear, um, which potentially could be urbanized as well. So the notion that there was a land supply crisis, that we had to open the greenbelt, that we had to force Hamilton to expand its boundaries, uh, that we had to open the Duffins Rouge Agricultural Reserve for urbanization for housing, just doesn't hold up. Uh, even if you accept the government's 1.5 million homes figure, uh, we didn't need to open these lands for urban development.
0: Uh, we had David Crombie on the program last week, Professor. Um, and David, of course, is a former mayor of Toronto, former cabinet minister of the Mulroney government, uh, and also, by the way, the former chairman of the Greenbelt uh, Council. Uh, he resigned in protest over some of the Ford government's policies on this. He was in Hamilton, by the way, this past weekend for one of these protests at Hamilton City Hall about uh, the urban boundary expansion and these programs. A knowledgeable man, uh, a, a very level-headed individual. And as he reminded us, and you point this out again in, in your piece that's in the conversation, uh the province's only own task force which was actually appointed by Doug Ford exactly said the same thing there is no need for incursions into the greenbelt there's more than enough land available right now to build the homes we need that's that's right there in black and white and the government just chose to ignore that
1: yeah i mean this is this is uh one of the more bizarre aspects of all of this that that uh the task force which was mostly made up of representatives of the development industry, you know, even in presenting what was something of a development industry wish list, didn't put incursions into the green belt onto that list uh, because even they recognized that the land supply problem was not there. And it does, of course, beg these questions then about why, why did the government feel the need to... Uh, impose the urban boundary expansion on Hamilton? Uh, why are we opening Duffin Rouge? Why are we taking land out of the Green Belt? And, and some of the answers that have been emerging, or at least being suggested, are, are well, somewhat, somewhat concerning, to put it mildly.
0: Uh, and I I don't want to get into the finger pointing, and, and that was not the point of your your piece. I know that that would no, be the no. case. You just want to present uh, a body of evidence to suggest that perhaps there was a different thing we could have and should have done and a different methodology uh, that, that should have been followed in a situation like that. But it does beg the question, um, you know, who, when, when the premier says, I'm listening to the people, uh, who's he listening to? What people is he listening to? Uh, because well, time and time again, he's reacted to that. And as uh, you know, 31 times, it was uh, according to, uh, the, the numbers that were, uh, raised by the, the Narwhal, the, the print uh, suggested 31 times, both the premier and, uh, the housing minister or the municipal affairs minister, uh, Clark have said, we're not going to touch the greenbelt. Don't worry. We're not going to touch the greenbelt. So, who, you know, it begs the question who changed their mind.
1: Well, I think, I think this is, this is the question that's, it's out there, um, I mean, the integrity commissioner is now asking these questions. Uh, the auditor general and environmental commissioner have been asked by members of the legislature to invest the, investigate these questions. Um, there has been reporting in the media. You mentioned the Norwell um, and others, you know, pointing to who owned the lands in question. We don't know the answers at this stage, but obviously the situation. Um, begs all kinds of suspicions about what was going on, given that even even based on the government's own task forces report, there was certainly no evidentiary basis uh, for these decisions to remove lands from the green belt or compel the boundary expansion in Hamilton. Indeed, you know the city of Hamilton was very clear they they didn't need to do this. Um, so it it does leave these these potentially ugly questions on the table about about what went on here
0: well and the other element too and, and as you mentioned uh you know there are a couple of different investigations uh, the auditor general is doing one the integrity commissioner another and 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 we'll let those processes unfold and, and make the determinations and and there may be a, a, other uh investigations uh, following that depending on that information but we'll we'll set that aside for the time being but the overriding question is as a one who did they listen to uh and b um since the green belt was sacrosanct and and even the premier said at one point, they weren't going to touch it. uh, Why did some of these developers purchase huge tracts of land within the green belt? uh, Unless they knew something that we didn't do. I mean, why would you buy a piece of land like that knowing that you were never going to develop on it? And then all of a sudden you got permission to develop on it. I mean, you know, it it stinks like a a batch of old rotten eggs right now. And, and, you know, we, I think people deserve an answer to exactly what's going on here.
1: Well, I think so too. Um, And and as you say, the, the, the the circumstantial evidence is 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 quite remarkable it's been reported very thoroughly um but it then also you know to sort of step back again um it it begs another set of questions too about um you know how then do we respond to uh the challenges around housing in the region uh, particularly for those at the lower end of the income scale and you know, because there is a very real problem there, um, but that it makes it very clear that that what the government did through these measures, through Bill 23, through opening the Greenbelt, seems to have nothing to do with that problem of, of affordability and housing access. Indeed, there's some evidence, you know, certain quite a bit of analysis says in some ways this is going to make those problems worse than ever, uh, encouraging speculation, encouraging conversion of rental and things like that. Um, So we're still left with this big question that that we have very serious issues around housing and development in the region and the province is undertaking these these sweeping changes. But um, there's no evidence that they'll actually make the problem any better and indeed quite a bit of evidence that they may well make the problems around uh, the environmental impacts of development, but also access and affordability of housing uh, worse than ever.
0: Well, and and I know that the justification for this is a rather simplistic economic approach. Well, if you have more supply, then, you know, the prices will go down. It works with bread. It'll work with houses. And as you say, that's that's a rather uh, simplistic way of looking at it. There are many other factors uh, that have to be taken into account here, and they don't seem to have done that. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating piece. I would direct our listeners to go to the conversation.com. And And get some insight as to exactly what's going on and why. and uh, and because we need to ask questions, we need to hold governments accountable for some of these decisions, especially uh, in light of the fact that uh, you know just weeks before that they had given us a, a hard and fast commitment to do the opposite of what they're doing. Professor, thank you for the work and the research you've done on this, and uh, thank you for spending some time with us today. Well, great, thank you very much. It's a professor Mark Winfield from uh, York University, and, and check it out when you get some time. And uh, and this is not, by the way, because I, 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 I get emails about this all the time, saying, "Are oh, you just picking on Doug Ford?" I'm not picking on Doug Ford. This is this is not a partisan issue. You know, the people I just talked about here, including David Crombie, is a, he's conservative. He was in the Brian Mulroney government. He's a conservative, but he also has an environmental expertise here. You can have both. As a matter of fact, his old boss Brian Mulrooney, was like that too, uh, considered by many to be the most uh, you know environmentally friendly prime minister we've had in quite some time uh, because of some of the initiatives that he undertook. You don't have to be anti-environment to, uh, to be a conservative. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's it's welcome that you are both. Uh, Bill Davis, who put you know all the stuff with conservation authorities and the, the, the support for the Green Belt, a conservative. John Robarts, his predecessor, same idea. So this don't hang this on, oh, this is just liberals and NDP doing this. This is concerned citizens about what we really want to see for our future. And not just our future, but our kids' and our grandkids' future. It's not just that we need to grow. It's where we need to grow and how we need to grow that are the factors here. And, and unless we're going to get sufficient answers and legitimate answers to all three aspects,